<laughs> but that isn't it. <clears throat> um, I've been looking a lot in Scripture um, about when Jesus traveled. I've been sort of looking at his travel itinerary. And he goes to this mountain, he goes across the lake, he goes to this place, and so on and so forth. And, and it struck me that he doesn't do anything randomly, that he has a purpose in whatever he does, including where he goes. And today we want to focus on, especially on Sundays like this, we talk about and celebrate three critically important comings and goings of Jesus. And so that's what I want to focus on today. Jesus going to Jerusalem, Jesus going to the grave, and Jesus coming from the grave. Three critical comings and goings, and I'll probably also another one that happens just 40 days later, which is Jesus going to heaven. And so that's what we want to do today, um, but the focus is going to be on the purposes, the purposes for which Jesus came and went in these particular cases. And normally we sort of focus on one purpose, but there are multiple purposes, as hopefully uh, we'll see today. Um, so I want to explore those purposes this morning. For the most part, I'm going to let the relevant scriptures speak for themselves because there are a lot of purposes uh, that are connected with Jesus coming and going. So let's look at the first, uh, and that is going to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Turn with me, and this is, uh, I'm sorry, I apologize in advance, this is another sword drill, uh, which I, I guess I often do because I get enthralled with an issue. Uh, but John 12, and by the way, it's interesting because if you were at the uh, the um, Good Friday service, or if you were in the main service this morning, you've already bumped into a number of these passages, and you also bumped into them unknowingly in some of the hymns that were sung. And so um, maybe I'll mention a little bit about that. But look at John chapter 12 and verses 14 to 16. There are, there are of course, numerous passages that deal with uh, Jesus coming to Jerusalem the first, the first purpose that I'm going to highlight is that he came to fulfill prophecy and show that he is the Messiah. He came to fulfill prophecy and show that he is the Messiah. And those of us who have been in Sojourners over the last several months are familiar with Zechariah. We know that in Zechariah 9.9, his entry into Jerusalem on a, on a colt was prophesied. But I'm going to try and kind of keep all of these down to about one passage. Once, Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. Now that is quoting Zechariah 9.9. But this verse 16 is important. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So they didn't remember that this was prophecy at first, but afterwards they did. And there's a, a reason for that, which we will bump into a little bit later as well. So he came to fulfill prophecy and to show that he is the Messiah. 
Another purpose that he had in coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was to demonstrate that he comes in salvation and in judgment. This morning, Dr. MacArthur linked up the judgment side that we rarely talk about when it comes to resurrection day. But Jesus made that clear when he came. And we're going to look at multiple verses here because we need to. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 38. And in verse 38, (coughs) we have another prophecy, um, and this is when he's writing in, and he says, uh, and, and it says, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this is what the people are saying then, uh, it, it, and it's uh, part of a, a prophecy. But look at verses 41 to 46, which happen immediately after. When he approached, he saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There he is talking about judgment that's coming on Israel. And we know it comes in A.D. 70, some 35 or so years later. But then again, also, if we continue in verses 45 and 46, he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. He not only weeps over judgment on Israel, but he also comes to clean out the temple. For its, uh, because it needed to be cleaned out, um, its corruption. So uh, go over to Mark 11, and Mark gives us another example of this. In Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, and those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, which means save now, save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna. But then what does verse 12 through 17 say? And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. That's interesting. Why is that here in this context? Because this tree was not bearing fruit, and so it was cursed. Likewise, the people who do not bear fruit are going to be cursed. Then look at verse... um, Verses 15 to 17. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. 
And he began to teach them and say to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? So again, Mark also connects this judgmental aspect with his entry into Jerusalem. So he comes, and they are saying, Save now, Hosanna, and he does come for salvation. But he also comes for judgment, like Dr. MacArthur was showing the two halves of it this morning. Right? It's salvation for some, but it's judgment for others. And then, of course, he comes for a third reason, the one that we uh, focus upon, and, like, and rightly so, um, and that is he came to suffer and die and be resurrected. I want to look at a, a couple of verses here. Matthew 16, verse 21. Remember, as Dr. MacArthur read this morning, the, the, the basic story uh, in Luke 19 of the, of the disciples and how they didn't believe, and you're probably saying, well, of course they wouldn't believe because they didn't have any advance warning that this was going to happen, right? Not so much. Um, Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples, began to show, which means there was multiple occasions, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So multiple times he is telling them this. Go over to chapter 20 of Matthew, verses 18 to 19. In verse 17, he took the disciples aside by themselves, and he said, Behold, verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. So he came to suffer and die and be resurrected, and it wasn't a surprise or it shouldn't have been, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us. So he came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday for these three purposes. Let's go from there to another going of Jesus, which is to the grave. And again, we want to focus on purposes. Why did he go to the grave? And you might say, well, yeah, that's obvious. Well, I've got nine. Uh, see, if you, uh, see if you've got nine. Purposes for going to the grave. Number one, to fulfill prophecy and promises. And here we get to go to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. But he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So here you have a prophecy that the Messiah will be killed, but also that he will see his offspring, that he will be raised. Um, now, go to Matthew chapter 12 again, and verse 40. Jesus says, 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the heart of the earth there, everybody understood was he was going to die. For three days and three nights, he would be in the heart of the earth. Go back to, or go forward to Matthew 17 and verse 9. After the transfiguration, Jesus says to the disciples who went with him, verse 9, and as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So Jesus has made promises here that he is going to rise from the dead. Isaiah has a prophecy, and Jesus has given promises. Look at verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 17, down the page. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised again on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So one of the reasons he goes to the grave is to fulfill prophecy from Isaiah and to fulfill promises that he made to the disciples himself. A second reason he goes to the grave is to suffer. Back to Isaiah 53. I told you to keep a finger there. Back to Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. A section that's very familiar to us. Surely our griefs him, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So he's going to suffer the Messiah, says Isaiah. Go forward to Luke. Luke chapter 9. Excuse me, I'm going to skip that one. Luke 24, my bad. Luke 24. This will sound familiar because you just heard it an hour ago. Luke 24, 26. When he's speaking to the men, Jesus, after his resurrection, says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Acts chapter 3 So it's the prophecy of Isaiah that the Messiah would suffer. Jesus himself says, hey, didn't the prophets say the Messiah would suffer? And in Acts 3, you have Peter's sermon in verse 18, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And then finally, Hebrews 2.10, the writer of Hebrews joins with Isaiah and Jesus and Peter. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. 
He came to suffer. A third purpose for him going to the grave was to provide direct access to God. If we go to Matthew 27 in the account of the crucifixion itself, in Matthew 27, starting in verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Wow. But that's not the really important part. The really important part is the next four words. From to bottom. The veil of the temple, the divider in the temple. For those who could come into the outer part of the temple and those who come into the presence of God was ripped in two from top to bottom because God did it. Providing access for us to God. We don't have to go through priests. We don't have to go through the sacrificial system. That's done away with by Christ when he goes to the grave. A fourth purpose is to demonstrate God's great love for mankind. We're all familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he did this. But a couple of other verses that are significant here. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved because of his great love for us. And then John, in 1 John 4.10, John says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He went to the grave as that propitiation for our sins. And this is where God demonstrates over demon spirits. In the hymn that we did this morning, Christ Arose, it talks about him in the chorus. Each time you go through it, so you'll think about it, but you didn't. Each time you go through the chorus, it talks about him winning victory over his foes. How many times, I grew up in the church, how many hundreds of times have we sung that? Have we talked about his victory over his foes? Um, Look at Matthew 12 and verse 29. And by the way, when Jesus went to the grave, his spirit didn't stay in the grave. Matthew 12, verse 29, Jesus said, How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property 
unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. And this is setting up this principle, which takes us to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. Starting, we'll start in verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that you might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Paul talks about that in Colossians 2.15 and uses a word that I'm connecting it with with our hymn this morning. Colossians 2.15, Paul says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authority, by the way, the previous verse is about the cross, and then it says, verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And this is a reference to the Roman triumph. When commanders of Rome would win a great victory, they were given a triumph in which they would ride in on a white horse and they would, they would lead a parade showing the great victory that they had made and there would be captives from the country that they conquered and there would be strange animals from that country and different fruits and so on and so forth to show what they had accomplished. And that's what Jesus does here. He triumphs over the spirits in prison in the time between when he is put in the grave and when he ultimately leaves the grave. So this is another purpose for him going to the grave, to triumph over the demon spirits that have been locked up there since the book of Genesis, the time of the book of Genesis. All right, a sixth purpose to go to the grave was to release our inheritance. Iron sharpening iron, guys, a week ago, I talked about this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. The writer of Hebrews says this, For this reason... And that what is this reason? The previous verse is about him offering himself. It's about his blood and offering himself. It's about his sacrifice. And verse 15 says, And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Why? For where a covenant is there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Covenant here essentially means a will. We all know this, right? That you don't inherit things from a will until the person dies. So he says here, for where a covenant or a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Verse 17, for a covenant or a will is valid only when men are dead for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. We have this inheritance of eternal life, an inheritance that that Paul talks about in Colossians and lots of other areas as well. Why do we get that inheritance? What released it? His death. 
on the cross released it because that was the will. And he had to die to release that inheritance for us. A seventh purpose for going to the grave is to prepare the way to heaven. John chapter 14 This is a very familiar passage, but I'm going to suggest something different to you about it. John chapter 14, I say verses 2 through 6, but let's start with 1. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. This is actually the verse that caused me to start thinking about comings and goings. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He goes to prepare the way to heaven. When I was a kid and up until I started thinking about this verse, I always sort of pictured Jesus when he died in heaven, sort of putting on tools and so forth, and he's building dwellings, right? He's building apartments or houses or something up in heaven. And, and he, he's like, you know, the ultimate construction guy. You know, and he's measuring stuff and he's hammering and so on and so forth. That's not what he's doing. All that's spoken into being in a word. That isn't what it means to prepare the way. He's preparing the way because he is the way and he has to die to make the way. That's why this other part of the verse is here. You know where I'm going. Thomas says, I don't know. We don't know the way. I am the way. No one goes to the Father but through me. He had to die to prepare the way to heaven. It's not that he's up there building stuff. Jim Carrey could do that. (laughs) He is the way to heaven. I'm sorry. I'm preaching. People are going to say, going back to Isaiah 59 again. Yes, I am. Isaiah 59. Starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. This is the fundamental problem of man. Our sin has made separation between us and God. It's what separated Adam and Eve from God in the garden. They had to be kicked out of the garden because of their sin. What does verse 16 say? And he, God, saw that there was no man to solve this, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede, then his own arm brought salvation to him. God had to die on the cross. Jesus 
the second person of the Trinity. God had to die on the cross to solve this problem of separation. And if you don't believe me, listen to Peter in 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. In order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So he went to the grave to solve the problem of man's separation from God, to bring us to God through his sacrifice. And then the ninth purpose is to pay the debt and make satisfaction and propitiation for sins. A holy God has to have the debt paid the debt of sin. And if we're not going to pay it, someone has to. It has to be God himself. Isaiah 59 just told us. And so the satisfaction had to be made. Back to Isaiah 53, although Daniel 9 is a good passage on this too, but we'll bump into that soon enough. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 2, again, verse 17 John was here Friday night. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a, a theological term for satisfaction. Satisfaction had to be made for the sins. And so that's why Jesus had to go to the grave. And finally, 1 John 2, 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and he himself, after in verse 1, referring to Jesus Christ the righteous, and that's a whole other sermon, Jesus Christ the righteous, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And then verse, chapter 4, verse 10, again, we read this earlier, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So these are nine purposes 
that Jesus had in going to the grave. But he didn't stay in the grave. That's what today is all about. He didn't stay in the grave. And so we turn now from a going to a coming. Coming from the grave. Otherwise known as... And there are multiple reasons for this as well. Multiple purposes. The first is to defeat death. And we can stay right in Hebrews 2, where we were a moment ago, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He came from the grave to defeat death. These other passages are really good too. Gosh, I wish we had time for all of it. Um, so just write them down. Um, secondly, a second purpose for coming from the grave was to be the first fruits, the firstborn of the resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. This is this classic passage in which Paul is talking about the significance of the resurrection. And among the things he says is verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits. Those of you who are sojourners, Old Testament people, you know about first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of those who die. Colossians 1.18, Paul says the same thing there in a straightforward fashion. Colossians 1.18, talking about Jesus, he says, He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's also the firstborn, Paul says in Colossians 1.18. Firstborn, he's not the first person to rise from the dead. He himself rose who? Yeah, so... He's not the first person to rise from the dead. So what does this mean? It's not firstborn chronologically. It is firstborn. It means a position, the position of the firstborn, the one who inherits, the one to whom all belongs. That is the sense in which he is the firstborn of the resurrected. So he's the first fruits and the firstborn of the resurrected. That was one purpose for coming from the grave. A third purpose was to provide proof of his resurrection. To provide proof of his resurrection. Why is that important? Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I'm sorry, yeah, 28. 28 and verse 17. 
Start in verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they what? They worshipped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him. They needed proof of his resurrection, that he was who he claimed to be. The resurrection provided that proof. John chapter 20, if they're going to worship him, they need proof. John chapter 20, verse 28. You remember, of course, that Thomas doubted, and he wanted to put his finger in Jesus' side and in the holes in his hands. And then what happens? Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He needed the proof of resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Jesus thought it was important that he prove that he was resurrected. Paul talks about it also in the passage that focuses on the resurrection in in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 5 to 7. It says, um, starting in verse 4, he was buried today, but more than that, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Okay, I teach ancient history, ancient Greek history and ancient Roman history. It says here, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. There were 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Do you know how many ancient history events had 500 witnesses? Almost none except for winds and battlefields. There weren't even 500 people in the Senate chamber when they started stabbing Caesar. Is it reliable that Brutus stabbed first? and that all the other senators stabbed him? We don't have 500 witnesses to that. We don't have 500 witnesses to Cleopatra letting a snake bite her. We don't have 500 witnesses for almost any ancient event. We have 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And many of those eyewitnesses died preaching that belief. Now, we have religious fanatics who will fly airplanes into buildings and kill themselves for their beliefs, but they don't know that their belief is false. They think it's true. If the apostles had not seen the resurrected Jesus, they would know they were preaching a false gospel and there's no way they would have died for it. We have 500 witnesses. Jesus made sure of it to prove his resurrection, that he was who he said he was. A fourth 
purpose for coming from the grave was to give resurrection for the saints. Okay, Jesus proves his resurrection, but what does that mean for you and me? 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22. First of all, we should read verses 16 and 17. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You ever wonder why the resurrection is part of the gospel? Why it's important to include in the gospel presentation? If Christ hasn't been raised, our faith is worthless. We're still in our sins. But look at verses 20 to 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. His resurrection gives assurance of our resurrection, as these other passages that are here also indicate. A fifth purpose for coming from the grave was to teach about the kingdom of God. It's interesting. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the one we just read, to these, all, uh, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of days, and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. During the 40 days, after he has come from the grave and walks the earth in a resurrection body, he speaks of the kingdom of God. And you almost think that he perhaps has some authority to do that given his resurrection. He's taught about the kingdom of God before, but now he's talking to demonstrate God's satisfaction with his sacrifice. And God here means the Father, because Jesus is also God. The Father's satisfaction with his sacrifice. Now there's a host of verses here because this is a complex issue. I emailed uh, some people smarter than me during the week uh, to, to get the verse in the Bible that specifically lays this out really clearly, and there isn't one. So uh, you piece a lot of things together, basically. But two, I think there's two, Acts 17.31, that uh, Dr. MacArthur just referenced this morning, I think does a really good job of this. Because he has fixed a day, God the Father has fixed a day in which he, God the Son, Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness, or rather that's still God the Father, will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So that, uh, that Jesus does furnishes proof that God accepts the sacrifice. But along with that is the fact that the Father seated him at his right hand. That's the other key part of the element. He seated him at his right hand, which we're going to see uh, in a minute. And that, that put together, those two things put together, shows that God accepted his sacrifice accepted his propitiation, his, accepted his satisfaction 
for our sins. But I would encourage you to, to look at all of these passages, uh, first of all, because it's just fun. They're just cool. But for our purposes, because if you piece it together, you can see very clearly that it indicates that God accepts the sacrifice and his satisfaction. All right, so we've got another place to go on the itinerary. Those are six purposes for Jesus coming from the grave. But 40 days later, he makes another journey to heaven, his ascension. And I'm going to suggest four reasons, or four purposes rather, in that. Four purposes in him going to heaven. Starting with purpose number one, to demonstrate how he would return. And this is what the angel says. Look in verse 10 of Acts 1, verses 10 and 11, Acts 1. They all watch him going up, in verse 9, his ascension. And in verse 10, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And that, of course, happens in Revelation 19. He will come from the clouds, it says. Jesus said, and so did the Old Testament. The Son of Man would descend from the clouds, and that's the way he went up. So, one purpose in him, in other words, he's going to heaven anyway, but why make it a thing? Why make it something that people watch? Right? I happen to believe this is. I happen to believe that the the rapture is not going to be. Un, that we're not going to see anything. I, I never mind. Um, <laughs> I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> Let me just say, I think we're going to see people raptured. They're not disappear. It's just my opinion. And God is making a point here. Jesus is making a point that they see him go. They know where he's going. They see it. And he's going to come from the same place. That's why it matters. That's why this verse is here. That's why the angel talks about it. All right, a second purpose for going to heaven was to await the final defeat of his enemies. Here we get to go back to the Old Testament. Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This is a passage that's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And there are these New Testament passages as well to make it clear that Jesus, all authority has been given to him, but for now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's not here in person, 
in physical form, ruling. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father until the final defeat of his enemies, which is what he comes back to do in Revelation 19, to finish it in that sense. So until then, he sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the final defeat of his enemies. He's ultimately defeated them already at the cross, but there's just cleanup to do. There's cleanup on aisle seven. A third purpose for him going to heaven was, of course, to send the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16 John chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. But now I am going to him who sent me. I'm going to God the Father who is in heaven. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he goes to heaven to send the Holy Spirit. Now I want to link this up. I didn't put it on the PowerPoint because I didn't think about it till this morning. But I want to link this up with another verse that I promised you earlier that we can have confidence that they got the record right. Look at John 14, 26. John 14, 26. Why does it matter that he sent the Holy Spirit, except in the overall big picture of things? John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he could have said, after I go to heaven, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I said to you. You ever wondered how the apostles could remember just what Jesus said? It's because the Holy Spirit told them. God sent the Holy Spirit. That's part of him being the helper. We can have confidence in what the the record of Scripture says because God sent the Holy Spirit and Jesus promised that he would bring to remembrance all that I said to you. All that I said to you. All right, a fourth purpose for Jesus going to heaven is to act as mediator and intercessor at the right hand of the Father. Again, those of us who were here for Zechariah know that Zechariah 3, 1, and 2, we see an example of the second person of the Trinity interceding for us. But Romans eight thirty four summarizes this. All these verses are good. Romans 8, 34, starting verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes. For us. He is at the right hand of the Father 
interceding for us. I read a quote from one guy this week who said, if we heard one sentence of Jesus interceding for us before the throne of He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So, believe it or not, this is the truncated version of my message because I've got two other, two other comings that I didn't cover, but there's only 18 points under those. <laughs> I have 11 purposes for the first coming that we're fairly familiar with, Christmas, and seven purposes for the second coming. But that would have to come with a second coming <laughs> because we're out of time. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that we got through the ones that relate to last week and this week and give us sort of a richer understanding, a deeper understanding of what's going on here. Now, the surface part that we always talk about is pretty darn deep and important, right? It's pretty amazing. We can say Hosanna. We can say Hallelujah, as we did in a number of songs. But there's a lot of other stuff going on as well because we have such an amazing, sovereign God who put together an amazing, sovereign plan that none of us could have ever dreamed up, but fortunately he did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, these passages, the concepts that are behind them. Father, thank you for your word, that you didn't leave us struggling in the dark, but you, that you revealed to us your glorious plan. We pray, Father, that you would help us to, on this day and every other day, give you praise and thanks and glory for your tremendous plan. You have grafted us in, that you have bridged that gap, that separation through your own death. And so, Father, we just give you glory and praise. Amen.